You are listening to the Married 2.0 podcast, episode 8. Welcome to Married 2.0. I'm your host, Amy Sanders. I'm a fitness and wellness pro, mom, stepmom, second wife, and master certified life coach. I'm here to help you manage your emotions, your relationships, and life so you can live a healthier, happier life. Hey everyone, welcome to the podcast. Today is a special day because I have a guest speaker with me who is incredible. She has been a total anchor in my life and has helped me and my family navigate some really hard things. And in previous podcasts, if you've been listening, we've talked about how we have been through multiple therapists and we found one who has just been phenomenal. And that's who I have with me. Her name is Michelle Jones. And she has just a myriad of, of so much experience, right, Michelle? Oh, you're, you're sweet. <laughs> she has so much experience. She has a master's degree in clinical social work. She has worked really closely with troubled teens and their families. And she also has help people with eating disorders. And then she moved into helping families in high conflict divorce cases. And that is not easy. That's like messy work. And she handles it flawlessly. And she herself, you laugh. I think you can handle it flawlessly. <laughs> but the other thing that I wanted to point out is Michelle has grown up um, you grew up in a blended home, right? Well, my parents were married. I, I think, uh, what you're referring to is, um, that my dad was from Guatemala and my mom's Caucasian. They came from different countries. So we blended, uh, cultures. Mm. That is what I meant. That is what I meant. And then from there, you've been through divorce. Yes. You've been a stepmom. Yes. <laughs> and stepmom you- in high conflict, I should say, not just an easy stepmom thing. Right. You have literally been through it all and you counsel people on it every single day. Yes. I, I would say that a lot, uh, you know, I had my social work training and then I have my like standard practice. And then because of my life experience, it made me so passionate to say, okay, what are the answers? What who knows what's best? And I started reaching out and reading research articles. Um, and I spent about 10 years gathering information uh, to try to do best practices for my own situation and for others. And then I found there was a great need for improvement in how we treat um, high conflict families. Yeah. Yeah. We found Michelle because we had we'd been with other therapists and things were not working. Like what they would say we should do, we would implement. And then we would like, it would blow up in our face, but it was because we didn't know what was going on in our own situation. And Michelle was able to be like, um, did you know? (laughs) (laughs) That's where there's a lack of training. It's not just readily available. You have to go search for it. And, and cases with high conflict are extremely counterintuitive. And so it's not that they're bad therapists. It's just they don't know that 
It doesn't like if you have kids resisting contacts, things like that automatically, you know, and I've worked with in treatment centers and things with, with oppositional defiant kids, but you think, Oh, it's just a oppositional defiant kid. And this is how you treat it. But that's not how you treat it in, in high conflict or like with parental alienation. It's kind of, it's very counterintuitive. It's, and some of the advice is actually the opposite but that you can crack that code if you look a little bit deeper and say, what is the root cause of this? And that I think is just, there's a gap between the research and applied clinical practice and they don't have that knowledge. So I've oftentimes had to say, okay, this isn't a bad clinician. They just don't have training. And I really wish there was more certification because this is a specialty. It's like you wouldn't just go to a dermatologist if you had cancer you know you need to go to somebody who has that training who's not guessing right yeah and there's a great lack but we're working on it (laughs) (laughs) yes who's actually doing do you want to tell people about what you're doing right now because it's pretty amazing (laughs) let's see what am i doing i'm doing a lot of things so yeah so i have a regular clinical practice where i see you know depression anxiety marriage counseling divorce adjustment um but since about 2010 is when i went on that quest uh it's like wait a minute what is going on when i got thrown into the middle of a lot of things and i was like wait a minute um this isn't working and the attorneys aren't helping and you know at first i thought well people it, just like other targeted parents or parents in the middle, they say, oh, everybody's corrupt. But I found that really the enemy, most people are trying to do the best they can, but they don't know. But the enemy is ignorance. So I joined different organizations and um, tried to do, you know, find out anything I could about high conflict divorce. Um, and so I went to a lot of trainings and you have to you have to travel and go. There's the PASGs, the Parental Alienation study group. They do a lot of research. There's the AFCC, which is the Association of Family and Conciliation Courts. But even within these different agencies um, and associations, not everybody agrees. So it's a work in progress. But so with that specialty, I started helping people specifically who didn't have access to their children. Um, In that arena, there's a lot of false allegations. There's lots of different reasons. You start with a blank slate. Uh, But anyway, I started working specially in that and doing assessments. It's like, why why is this relationship compromised? And I try to be very data-driven, you know, like not making assumptions and then just follow the data. And what I find in a lot of cases is when when the marriage was intact, the kids had good relationships with both parents. And, and then during the divorce, when it became conflictual, then um, allegations started. So that's kind of suspicious that maybe you have a, you know, a 10 year marriage or, or 20 year marriage, and you just have some kids who've aged out. And, and then all of a sudden, the story changes, the narrative changes. And so I want to look at the facts and uh, false allegations versus actual abuse. So we take abuse seriously. But anyway, I became a reunification therapist trying to get restore relationships. I believe that the family is so important. And in that, then I started helping the parents who were, you know, maybe it's, it's not always men, but a lot of times the man 
kind of gets kicked out of the house and he's trying to see his kids. But I, I've had plenty of women in the same situation where they've been vilified and they're trying to get uh, restored contact. So that's kind of the specialty. And then along with that, um, I've done a little bit of custody evaluation um, and just short-term evaluations where the court says, hey, we don't know what's going on. Everybody's, it feels like everybody's lying. Can you figure this out? And so they ask me to, to look, dive a little deeper and see what the issues are and what I would recommend for that family. The, the whole goal is having two healthy parents involved with the children. I really believe in that. And that's what we're going to talk about today is the benefits of shared parenting, having both parents be part of yes. life. Yes. And that's when you ask me what I'm doing. Um, that's another thing is that I, in 2013, I got involved uh, with the National Parents Organization. It's, it's not a father's rights group, but it's, um, it's, it's an association that supports shared parenting and just having good relationships with both parents. Um, and so that's, so I have a lot of, there's a lot of research on shared parenting and the benefits of that. So what's been the norm with counseling when it comes to shared parenting, especially we live in Utah. It's very heavy towards giving mom a lot of rights and dad not. I know that we're working on changing that, but what do you see in therapy usually? Um, yeah, what I find, um, I guess, bigger than therapy is just there's cultural norms, right? And so sometimes I'll even be doing marriage counseling and then all of a sudden one of them decides, and so maybe a woman is confiding in me. It's like, hey, I can't make this work. So, so I get to be the custodial parent, right? Like they just assume well, I'm a mom, so I'm going to have the children and then he'll have every other weekend. And um, and I understand why people think that even if both parents have been, sometimes the father's the primary caretaker, but they're like, well, I'm getting divorced, so I'm going to get this package. So I wanted to explain a little bit of the history with that. Um, laws, custody laws continue to change, but is it okay if I go back over the history so we can kind of yeah, understand absolutely. how did we get to be where we are? And, and I just want to note that um, a lot of the things we see in law are reflective of the thinking at the time, you know, so they're, they're based on culture, not just like the perfect thing. And then we're, we're trying to evolve to something more um, objective and more in the, that really helps children. So if we go way back to like the 16, 1700s and um, back in the day, women didn't make any money and they weren't even considered, they didn't have rights. They, they were considered property by the man, the, the women and the children. I mean, it's hard to imagine. I know a lot of feminists, like they understand the history, but um, it's hard to understand children not having rights. If you think about the labor laws that we had to instill a long time ago, children were put in factories that were dangerous. And so we just thought differently, way differently. So fathers made money and women and children were seen as property. So they were always given to the man way back in the day. And then um, around, I can't remember exactly when, so I don't have all the exact timelines, but around the 1920s, um, some of the laws were adopted from England and they started what was called the tender years doctrine. Uh, this was for a lot of different reason, reasons. Nursing mothers, um, they started thinking that children under the age of four were 
believed to be best with their moms, you know, especially with breastfeeding um, and that they were, women were assumed to be better nurturers, like, and, and a lot of that thinking is still around today, but then it expanded from infants to like seven years old. And then it was like, okay, mothers should just be, they should just have custody, primary custody. And during the revolution, uh, industrial revolution, a lot of our roles changed. So history changed and, um, you know, people were more home-based and farm-based and all of a sudden a man was going to work and he was in a factory and the woman was home. And due to these roles, it became like women get the children, men go to work. And then, um, that continued on somewhere in the fifties, I think. So therapy is actually relatively new. Then we had Freud, um, and we had, um, Bowlby is John Bowlby was um, a therapist who did research with attachment work. And so the mental health research started influencing the court. And at that time they were doing attachment research with moms. And so they're like, Hey, this is so important. And so then it was reflected in the custody. And then they started doing realizing, wait a minute. So fathers have a different kind of attachment, but it's also very needed. I think that research started um, because sometimes children were separated from parents in the hospital and then they would suffer quite a bit. And they were, I mean, we're just kind of in the infancy of all this. They started realizing, oh, it's damaging for a child to be away from their parents. So they started studying attachment. So if you want to look into it, uh, John Bowlby and Mary Ainsworth did a lot of research on attachment and that still comes into play today. So, but just, just to make it uh, more simple, um, so that went to about the 60s and 70s. And all of a sudden we started getting in the, the era of civil rights, you know, like equal rights and, and uh, equal rights for women. But then not only equal rights for women, but the men were feeling really left out. They could not get custody. I think women were five or 10 times more likely to get custody. And so the only way a man could get custody is if he proved that she was unfit. And you can see that that's very, like he wants to be involved and all of a sudden you have to be very adversarial in order to get much of anything. So people started realizing, um, okay, the court is very contentious. So how can we reduce this? So, um, so let's go back to, we want to take it out of men and women, women get more. So let's make it more neutral. So they changed two things. They went, that's when they went to a best interest standard because they realized it was unconstitutional to just give kids to, to moms. It was actually a violation of the 14th amendment, equal protection. So they said, okay, let's roles are changing. Families are changing. And they also back in the olden days, you just have to in order to get a divorce, it had to be granted. You had to prove that that person was, you know, that cheated on you or whatever. So the court was getting tired of all of this, like really contentious stuff. So they said, let's just make no fault divorce. So we had two changes, best interests of the children uh, for custody and no fault divorce. And when was this? Um, this was late 60s. I think it might have been in 69, 70. Okay. So you know, coming out of the equal rights, kind of civil rights era. Um, and so then you could get a divorce granted on irreconcilable differences. Mm -hmm. But the problem is, you know, you're still going to have high conflict people. This acrimony that was in it, it moved from proving who was bad in the divorce to custody issues. 
So it didn't go away. It just morphed. And the problem, uh, one of the most damaging things with that is that incidence of parental alienation increased because then the children were brought into the conflict. So parental alienation, you know, like trying to cut off one person from a family, um, it's been around forever, but it greatly increased in the 80s. It's really sad. They're trying to make it better and it actually got well, worse. Let's talk about this just for a second because a lot of people don't even know what that is. They assume that there's just, you know, one parent's trying to keep the kids from the other parent, which that is what it is. But Right. We have to differentiate so that when we do evaluations and there needs to be a more standardized way to do this because there's so many accusations, like some people will claim alienation. So, okay, let's go on a definition first. It's unwarranted cutoff of a healthy, fit parent, not an abusive parent. It's a campaign of denigration against somebody so that um, so somebody can have the advantage with custody. Like I'm the better parent, this person's horrible and we're going to reduce you down to almost nothing. Um, and so then the kids have to get involved, pick a side and start denigrating the parent too. And so they use that as uh, like during custody evaluations to try to vilify somebody. So the first thing we have to do is say, has there been any abuse? And, you know, has there been abuse substantiations like DCFS or CPS, whatever is in your state, um, and this person is dangerous, or was it this person was involved and was the primary caretaker, and then all of a sudden when you get divorced, it's like, we don't want you around anymore. So you have to look at the whole history, um, and when things just happen during you know, the separation, it's a little bit suspect to me. You know, and some people won't look at the history, just hear that. It's like, oh, this person's domestic violence perpetrator. And it's like, okay, there's no police records. They're just allegations. So that's a big red flag to me. Um, any any other questions about what that is? So we have to differentiate and we always take it seriously. But But I also want to say that sometimes when you're just hearing he said, she said, and a whole bunch of, and, and one side's lying or both sides are lying. Sometimes the court just hears danger and they err on what they think is the safe side. It's like, okay, so if this person's abusive, then we're going to put you under supervised visits or you won't have any visits. And, and sometimes that's not based on anything accurate. They're just trying to be safe and they actually are doing harm because they're removing a good parent from the situation. Not permanently, but sometimes these things go on for two years or, or longer where someone's fighting to just have access. So that's that's pretty damaging to the children and all the relationships. Right. So, um, so when they tried to make this more peaceful, then kids started getting involved. Um, and let me just say this, it's like, 90% of the people who get divorced have empathy for their kids and they move on within two years uh, post-divorce and they adjust. It's an adjustment, but they move on. And and they're happy when, you know, the other parent remarries because they're like, okay, more people in the tribe, you know, they don't get jealous or um, they just want their kids to be happy. Most people are like that. Within the family court, you know, so 
there's like 10% of the population that doesn't move on. That's what we consider high conflict. And there's some myths about high conflict. Some people like, oh, they're all liars and they're all fighting. That's what people used to tell me. But then I noticed it only takes one to keep the fighting going. So the, the high conflict is when, you know, the longest I heard was it took somebody seven years to divorce. And I was like, most of the time, you know, it's a year wow. or two. But think about the conflict the kids are in. And they're trying to decide custody and they're trying to divide assets and they're just fighting and fighting and fighting. So I want you to know that that is actually more rare, but the family court doesn't see the peaceful people because they move on and they didn't, they don't litigate. The high conflict keeps coming back to court. So what about the people that after your divorce continue to sue or continue to meddle? Would you consider yeah. that also high conflict? Yes, that's high conflict is when there's just, you solve one thing and then it just goes to the next thing, you know, because as there's, there's a, a researcher, therapist and attorney, his name is Bill Eddy and he has the high conflict Institute in San Diego. And he's written a lot of books that about high conflict people in court. And he says, the issue is not the issue. The personality is the issue. And that's when you're going to see things continue to, you know, like it, it, it never gets solved. Right. And I know some people who <laughs> I know of a case right now, 16 years past the divorce, they're still fighting. So they have to have a lot of interventions and people involved to keep it civil. Cause that's more of a personality problem than it is a divorce problem. Does that make right. sense? Yeah, it does make sense. And I wanted to ask you about that. Cause a lot people struggle with that. I was going to say a lot of people I guess not a lot of people, but the people that do struggle with it continue to struggle with it. So just to understand what it is. could Right, right. So it doesn't have a normal conflict solving um, process, you know, where you like a lot of times if you're in a high conflict, you'll do a mediation. You might be there all day and people are surprised, you know, it's like, oh, this is going to take two hours or three hours. They're there 15 hours, right? And everyone's dead tired. They reach an agreement within a week. It's broken. That tells me there's a personality problem. Oh, unfortunately, we have experienced that. <laughs> Think about all the time and the money, and, and but it only takes one person to. Right. Uh, so um, I, I would say that's one of the hallmarks of high conflict is that they don't respect boundaries. Mm -hmm. you, you make a divorce decree, they break it. You have parent time, they withhold the kids. You're thinking they're above the law. So those are. Uh, you know, I didn't have prepared like a whole list of that, but, but in that sense, see, this is a myth is like two people just can't get along. It only takes one person to find a court order to force both of them back to court. And one of them probably desperately wants peace. It's like, can we just have an agreement and keep it? So that's, that's hard on children. So what I wanted to focus on today was just saying, this is an idea. It's not going to fix everything. Just like, all the things in history, they try to fix things and sometimes it turned into a bigger problem. But I believe the or the research says that if we have expand the parenting time between um, the parents, that that becomes a buffer, that that is in the best interest of the children, that that's what the research says is healthiest for them to be allowed to have a relationship with each parent. Now, some people, they have 
you know, like maybe a dad is a truck driver and he, and he can't do shared like 50, 50 custody because, but if you expand it to, okay, when you're back, when you are home, you can have as much as you can. So that's what I'm saying is expanding it to not reduce one down to a visitor and one be the real parent or the real home that causes a lot of conflict. Right. So, um, yeah, I did go over the history. I just want to say one thing is that when people get these assumptions, like I'm getting divorced, I'm going to be the custodial parent. Right. And then, and then he's going to get every other weekend and a midweek visit. So historically, again, what the courts wanted was you guys work out whatever you want. And hopefully you're getting along well enough that you'll do what's best for the kids. But then people who couldn't agree, states made laws that said, in if you can't agree, then here's the minimum. Here's the minimum. That's, that's every other weekend and a midweek visit is the minimum statute. And what happened is the minimum became the maximum. And I've heard people say to their, to their ex-spouses, sorry, that's all you get. And um, it was never intended to be that way. And so when when that happens, people get reduced down to be a visitor. And it can happen to a man or a woman. But it, in most cases with fit parents, that really hurts the children. So we're trying to look at what's better for them. And, and you know, like what does the research say? So they've done, man, over 50 years of longitudinal studies that means watching a child his whole life and after and into adulthood you know following up what is best for kids with thousands and thousands of families and then they've looked at that research and done meta studies and so anyway it's very clear but the problem is research says one thing the courts kind of stuck back into cultural myths and we're trying to get bridge that gap and bring the research into how courts make decisions. When you explain that to me, so I am in full support of my kids being their father, right? Mm -hmm. It's like, I understand that this is what's good. This is what I want for them. I want them to love him. I want them to have a good relationship with him. And so they do, they see him. But when you were explaining to me that that was supposed to be the minimum, not the maximum amount of time, I was like, whoa, I've been told that this is what it is. Yeah. You know, but that's what we think. And that's what has happened. I was like, huh. So it makes me reflect on me. Like, am I giving him more time? Am I helping these kids be emotionally healthy and happy by having good relationships with both parents, which they really do have, but it just made me step back and reflect. And so with this podcast, same thing where I want these listeners to think, am I helping these kids have a relationship? Am I doing my part so that there can be, like, they can be emotionally stable? Right. And so I do want to do a little disclaimer because I can just imagine some people out there, some listeners saying, yeah, but, but um, my ex doesn't want to be involved or my ex is abusive. Right. So the shared parenting model with this expanded or equal time or as much as you can excludes domestic violence and child abuse. So they don't, and also um, people who alienate, which is a form of emotional abuse, those situations, it still has to be case by case. 
and if they can't if they're doing more damage then they're excluded from this you know then it has to be specific for that situation so every you know so it's best to expand it with healthy fit parents if that makes sense we're not trying to force kids with their abusers but we also have to be careful if those allegations are false we don't want to take kids away from healthy parents right no i'm glad you clarified that <laughs> yes it's tricky but it's but it's important for these kids you know it's- yeah some kids some parents are negligent and it's scary and you don't want to leave them there very long and uh, you have to share but there it's and i know i have a lot of clients right that in that situation who were domestic violence victims and they get scared to leave the kids there they want supervision um but see that's appropriate gatekeeping, meaning if they were going into danger, you should restrict or you should be watching or you should, you know, do things to protect them. But if it's just based on jealousy and and what I see is sometimes there's a household that has more money and the kids have a lot of fun and the other parent gets mad and then they try to prevent them from having good things in their life. So, so can we talk a little bit about why it's important for children to have, um, equal, equal parenting or the, the most expanded parenting? Absolutely. Okay. Cause a lot of people don't know. It's like, what does, what does the research say? So right now, when you go to court and you're trying to decide, they use best interest of the child. And um, they've defined that a little bit more in each state code, but sometimes it doesn't match what the research says because it's more subjective, it's more uh, susceptible to bias or whatever that jurisdiction thinks. So we're trying to um, make it more objective. Okay, so there's a lot of different research out there and I'll just give you a few uh, things is that a few reasons, arguments, I guess. So having more equal shared parenting preserves a parent's relationship with the children. I mean, we build relationships because we're around people. So if we hardly see anybody, the relationship gets more distant. If I think about my own life is like my, my aunt and uncle lived far away and they would visit us about once a year. And I would, you know, it's not like somebody that you're around all the time. So I always felt a little distant from them. Um, and so parents shouldn't be, you know, turned into distant relatives. And also if there's, if you're blocking access with one parent, you're not only just cutting them off from them, you're cutting them off from maybe, um, half siblings, grandparents, cousins, you know, they're going to lose part of their identity. So having a good relationship with that parent is really important uh, for the, the child's emotional and physical safety. And um, also parents, I know a lot of times we are like, oh, we have to think about the children. But think about a parent, uh, you know, they grew up, they created a career. Sometimes people go to school for a long time so they can be a good provider, so they can take care of their children. And all of a sudden they don't have children. And that's, um, it actually increases, greatly increases the risk of suicide for people who just get bumped out of a family. I mean, divorce is hard enough, right? That's a major loss. But then if you lose your children too, it's, 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 um, causes trauma. And 
so and severe depression. I mean, you don't know who you are. Why am I doing what I'm doing? And then on top of that, if you get accused of things you haven't done, I mean, I've known people who were almost like almost a therapist or almost a teacher. They were doing their internship, were going through a divorce, got falsely accused. And because they were being investigated, they lost their job, like almost to the finish line. I mean, that, those are devastating. Some of this um, legislation to make equal parenting more um, culturally acceptable, like more like this is where we're going to start and then we can change for your situation. It just sets a mindset. So um, sometimes there's some myths like, oh, somebody wants to increase their custody so they can reduce their child support. In most cases, that is not true. Um, and also it decreases family violence. They found the states who have adopted these laws to make more equal shared parenting have a reduction in domestic violence. It doesn't increase it. It reduces it because a lot of it is about being unfair, like just feeling like one person has power, the other one doesn't. So it levels the playing field. And so here's one of the biggest myths for high conflict. Sometimes the court's like, oh, okay, these two don't get along. We cannot have these kids going back and forth. So they give somebody sole custody. I'm not talking about an abusive situation. I'm just talking about high conflict. And um, what the research says is that having shared parenting actually gives the children a buffer. It gives them resiliency. Even if the parents hate each other, the benefits of having a warm, close relationship with both parents is a protective factor for children. So this is something that a lot of people think, oh, we can't have shared parenting when it's high conflict, but that's that's not true. So we need to we need to get the word out to the courts that that's not true. So when you say shared parenting, though, do you have in your mind, I know it, I know the ratios are going to be different for each right. person, especially with like their schedules and different things that they have going on in their lives. But as a therapist, what would your recommendation be if two people who are healthy could, what would that percentage be for each person? Well, 50-50 is best. If you can do it. And a lot of people, there's so many different ones, like they'll do week on, week off, or they'll do what's called a 2255, um, where one parent gets Monday and Tuesday, the other parent gets um, Wednesday and Thursday, and then every other weekend. So it just depends. You know, a lot of kids, a lot of kids in therapy tell me, I don't like going back and forth so much. Um, teenagers sometimes like the 225. Um, because they can work on certain days and they know where they're going to be, you know, stuff like that. But, um, so there's different, it's very, it's very situation dependent, but I would say the more equal, the better, because then you've got two real homes instead of one home and a visitor. Yeah. Looking even at my own life, cause I have stepkids and I have my own children and they do feel like visitors. My, my stepchildren feel like visitors when they're here and my kids feel like visitors when they're with their dad, even though they do have more time with their yeah. dad than my stepkids have with my husband. But there's that, I don't want to go. It, it doesn't feel like home. And if there was more equal time, there would be two homes. Like you could really set it up instead of, I'm not going to leave anything here in your house. Like I want to go home. You know what I mean? It's like two two homes and respecting that 
both parents, even if they're different, they have something to offer. So it's the longitudinal studies when so sometimes children don't know what they want. They just want what's convenient, you know, like, oh, I have to go. Like they don't like transitions. But when they when they follow them through their whole lifespan and as adults, they're grateful to have relationships with both. So they don't always have the perspective as children and teenagers, right? They're more self-centered. Mm-hmm. But in the long run, the when they're adults and they asked them, they said, I was, I'm so grateful that I could have a good relationship with both parents and learn from both of them. So before this podcast, you and I were talking a little bit and you gave me some really sad, but interesting statistics about single parenting and children and. Yes. Yes. It's part, it's part of the the research. It says, um, so first of all, you know, I was a single mom, so I could get defensive about this, right? Like not all single parent homes are horrible, but let's just go backwards. It's like, if you look at the prison population of youth, 85% of youth in prison come from a single parent home. 90% of homeless and runaway youth are from fatherless homes. And 71% of high school dropouts are from single parent homes. Um, and single parent homes have children with increased depression and, and risk for suicide and substance abuse. And I think, you know, I can look at my own situation. I try to be a mom and a dad, right? So like when I was married, he was a little bit stricter and then I would be the nurturer. And then once I got divorced, I'm like, oh my gosh, I have to be the rule setter and the nurturer and work. And, and you're spread so thin that, um, I think what's painful to look back on is that I had to be gone more than I was before. And so even though we had loving relationships, my kids felt more on their own and there was nothing I could do about that. You know, I have babysitters and my mom would help me, but, um, and you imagine some of these kids in divorced homes are growing up in bad neighborhoods, um, joining gangs, yeah, low income, not having the support that they need. And they just want a sense of belonging, right? Or they say, well, you know, if they don't have help with their homework or their home, their latchkey kids, their kids aren't that motivated to do their homework on their own. So I can see a lot of reasons why I've just um, more, more conflict, not enough parenting going on. Yeah, so. it makes sense. But as a single mom, I was one too. You're like, wait, I did a good job. And yes, as we could with what we had, but it still is going to be better for a kid to have a mom and a dad. Right. With with the shared parenting, it relieves stress on the overwhelmed parent that they have to do everything. If the other person, so if the other, the ex-spouse wants to be involved and says, let me do the homework, let me run the kids around. Like, wouldn't that be amazing (laughs) to not have to do it all? If, you know, so these these are for parents who want to be involved and that would be, that would help the stress of both parents. But the person, the parent I would say for me, I would have to just let go of the pride and be okay with letting the other parent help out. And I think a lot of women struggle with that. Well, I say women, but because this podcast is mostly women, but people in general, just letting go of that pride to let the other parent do more and see the kid more. Right. And not being threatened by a stepmom. Now, some stepmoms and, you know, you and I are both stepmoms. (laughs) 
Um, some step, some stepmoms way over step, right? If they're like, my way is best and they compete and other ones are like, Hey, do you just take the back seat and I'll help you when you're here? You know, it takes a village to raise a child and, um, letting, letting the kids have fun and have learn new things from other relationships. That's, that's the healthiest, right? So the kids don't have to go between saying, I know this parent hates this parent or is critical. Um, I have even seen really young children, four or five, figure out my parents don't get along. And so they'll do things like when they're in dad's home, they call mom by her first name. And when they're in mom's home, they call dad by his first name. You know what I mean? It's like they're just trying to manage this conflict when, and that's hard on their development. They, if everybody gets along, it's like, I can go between these houses and I feel free to love everybody. That is best for the kid's development. So how do we get there? What would be your recommendation for people who are in a situation? I would say that if you're getting divorced, if you like go to therapy and get out your grief issues, it is huge, deep grief and loss, and it changes your identity and don't use your kids as confidants. Um, don't make them choose like, well, your dad cheated on me. And so he doesn't love me and he doesn't love you. You're going to have to separate out your issues and, um, try to support the relationship and, um, just know that the kids, sometimes it, it, it's difficult. So this is therapeutically what to know about kids. They can act like little adults when they don't understand. And oftentimes they're very uh, appeasing and they want acceptance. And so they'll agree with you. And it looks like that's their opinion too. But oftentimes it's not. They're just learning how to play all sides. They don't know what's right. So we have to be adults and say, okay, this is what my kids need, even if it bugs me, right? And kids are so attuned to, like, maybe you don't say anything bad, but if, if they say, oh, I had so much fun, I did this, and you're just silent, or you roll your eyes, they're like, okay, never mind. I'm not going to tell you anything because I don't want to upset you. Right, but that's still telling them something, your reaction, right? They're like, oh, I can't, I can't act like that because that makes her feel bad. I always say emotions are contagious. And, and okay, so here's, I also do co-parenting counseling, and I do have a lot of people ask me these questions. They're like, well, what if you know, my child is not getting along with their stepmom or they're mad at their dad. And I'm sorry, I'm using gender things, but this is kind of typically how it works out, you know? Um, and how it's like, can I talk about that? You can, they'll come in, but you know, and say this happened and this happened, but you have to be really careful not to make alignments. You know, like some people are almost searching for dirt on the other family. So the kids will be prepared. Like maybe they had a great weekend and one little thing went wrong. Not like, mom, you know, she said this to me because they know it stirs things up. You have to be. So a person with better boundaries, like, Hey, I know that's hard. Um, you need to talk to your dad about that. Or they can get a therapist and say, why don't you work things out in family therapy with that side so that they're not running to you and you're rescuing them. Because in, so this last year when I've done co-parenting counseling, 
it's really interesting. Um, and some of them have been high conflict, but then we get down to, it and it's like, Hey, did you know that our son said this? And a lot of those stories, it's like the telephone game. They've been blown out of proportion. And then the parents are mad at each other. And sometimes the kids aren't trying to maliciously stir up conflict, but they they're venting their anxiety or something. And the story changes and it puts the parents at odds. So, um, having some communication to be able to check things out and say, you know, he said this and what's happening at your house. So it's got to be some kind of communication that can just don't assume that your child is always right and try to rescue them. Let's talk about that for a second too, with healthy communication with the other parent. Yeah. Within boundaries. Right. Usually just emails. Just emails. I was going to ask, what would be your recommendation? So emails. So most people use text messages just for um, emergencies, but they don't, they try to really, really limit that. And then just going by emails, sometimes people will make an agreement like, okay, at the end of my parent time. So even like people with 50-50 custody, it's like, okay, they've had them for a week. If there's any concerns, like, like so-and-so was sick or they finished their antibiotics, you just write in an email. Um, things to report to the other parent for good co-parenting. Um, and then that you could say, if you if established a good enough relationship with the other parent, like, hey, um, you know, our daughter said that there was some contention. I'm just turning that back to you. Uh, she was a little bit worried about it. Just want to let you know. But, yeah. you know, you have to establish a pretty good relationship. Um, and I, again, we've got the healthy relationships and the high conflict relationships when it's really high conflict and any kind of feedback just turns into like it could be used against you you're going to go back to court things get exaggerated then you have to do more of what's called parallel parenting where you don't you don't share as much and you just keep it you know it's, people will say my house my rules and you don't make those decisions together so it's kind of tricky um, and if, if it's really blowing up, I would say get a co-parenting counselor uh, because that can greatly reduce the litigation. Or in some states, they have um, parent coordinators who are tra trained to work in high conflict situations. Um, if, it's, if it's really bad, like in Utah, this is what happens where they can't make decisions. Every time they try to work together, it's blows up, then sometimes the court will appoint a special master. And in other states, they call them parent coordinators who can make short decisions, kind of like a referee in the middle. Right. So, so it is. So if you know that you're not going to be able to make progress uh, just doing counseling, then you just need some really strict boundaries to keep to reduce the conflict. So a co-parenting counselor would be someone that we would both go meet with together. Is that what that would look um, like? So every situation's different. When, when I do it, I often meet separately with each person for a while until I can understand. And then we say, do you feel safe enough? Like I try to be the go between and then maybe eventually we'll meet together. Uh, some people can meet together. Some people don't want to be in the same room. So it just depends on how, contentious that situation is but you're communicating through a third person ideally if we can get both in the same room 
if it's productive. So I think there's some prep work you have to do before, like how are we communicating? How can we keep the escalation down before I would just stick them in a room and <laughs> get triggered and they both yell? It has to be safe or it's not productive. I can only imagine of some of your some of your counseling sessions you've had. <laughs> most, of them, most of them have been very, you know, because I take the time, if I know it's volatile, I'll just keep trying to understand each person and bring those issues and try to make a negotiation before we ever get together. You know, 20 years ago, I think I had a one marriage counseling that that's what they were doing was fighting and they just blew up. And I had to say, look, if we're not, you can do this at home. You're not going to do this in my office, right? You guys can leave. <laughs> so that's they did, but that's only happened once. So wait, that's amazing in 20 years. Yeah, that's really great. I'd have to stop it before it gets to there. <laughs> She's learned, right? <laughs> yeah. Um. Okay. So, I'm trying to think. We I know we covered a lot of the things we wanted to. Are there other, are there other? Let me see. So let me just make one more comment about, you know, the cultural myths, okay. right? Um, so there was an article, let's see, what was her name? Linda Nielsen has written some shared parenting research and she did, um, I can't think of the name. Hang on, let me see if I can find it. There was another article called Pop Goes the Woozle. So a woozle, it is taken from um, Winnie the Pooh. Okay, so the woozle is taken from Winnie the Pooh that he has this little story. Uh, Winnie dupes himself with his friends into believing that they're being followed by a scary beast, and he calls that the woozle. And although they've never seen the woozle, they convince themselves it exists because they see the footprints next to theirs as they walk around circles in a tree. And so they're actually seeing their own footprints. And um, Pooh and his friends are confident they're on to something really big, but they're taking the data and they're, they're twisting it if that makes sense. And so then it's like, oh, a myth is born, right? So you, you, you make your own evidence and then you build a story. And then um, there's another guy, Paul Krugman. He is a Nobel Prize winning economist. And he wrote about a similar concept that he called a zombie. So it's a belief that everyone, everyone important knows must be true because everyone they know says it's true, right? So you keep repeating it, so it must be true. Um, and that's an example of a zombie idea, an idea who should, that should have been killed by evidence, but refuses to die. <laughs> and it does a lot of harm. So once upon a, a couple of years ago, I wrote an article in this magazine it's called shared parenting myths, woozles and zombies. If you, I think it might be out there in the internet somewhere anyway. So, so some of these things that people just say, well, that's just the way it is. Right. But the research doesn't say it. So. Let me look at a couple of these. Uh, so they're myths and misrepresentations of research that are not supported by evidence, but because they keep being repeated, they're, they're believed to be true. Um, so let's look at a couple of these. So a couple of these woozles and zombies are children want to live with only one parent and they, they need to have one home. Like a lot of people will say that that's best for the kids. But when these children were asked as adults, they said having a relationship with both parents was worth any hassle they experienced in transitioning between homes. Okay, and number two, young children 
are supposed to have one primary attachment figure, the mother, with whom they bond more strongly. Given this, it's hurtful for infants to spend any overnights with the other parent. Well, the truth is, and they've done extensive research on this, um, infants form different types of attachments, but strong attachments to both parents. There's no evidence to support postponing the introduction of regular and frequent involvement, including overnights of both parents with their babies and toddlers. So those are cultural cultural norms that were are in the process of changing. And then this is one I said before, where there's high conflict between parents, children do better with sole custody. Um, and so that's, that's some, uh, I believe that's widely held, but not supported by research. Conflict remains higher in sole rather than shared custody families. Most children are not exposed to more conflict in shared parenting families, but maintaining strong relationships with both parents helps diminish the negative impact of the parents' conflict. So just in case people aren't aware, mm -hmm. can you tell us the difference between sole and joint custody? Because I think it's confusing to some people. Oh, okay. Yeah. Well, first of all, there's residential custody, like where you live, and then there's legal custody is the decisions you get to make. And so the standard now is most people will get um, shared legal custody. That means you get to weigh in on decisions like school, religion, um, and medical things. Mm -hmm. But if somebody, like I know some people that are just so defiant um, that they just try to thwart every, like the kid needs special ed, the kid has ADHD, the parent won't let them get medication. Sometimes they'll just give sole legal custody to one so that the decisions can be made. You know, and a lot of people deal with that. But in most cases, you share the decisions, you weigh in on it, you might have to go to mediation, you decide together. So what I'm talking about with shared parenting is residential, where you live. And so mm -hmm. The, culturally, what we've been doing is we have a custodial parent and a non-custodial parent, right? So the visitor and the primary parent. And I'm saying we need to move more to shared physical custody to level the playing field. Exactly. To make both homes feel included and respected and to give relationships, um, equal relationships between the parents. So that's what I'm talking about residential yeah. custody. So that's something more and more states are going to what they call a rebuttable presumption of shared parenting. That means you start there and then you can look at your particular situation and change it, but it's supposed to be the most time that it can in that situation. Does that make yeah. sense? Make oh, it makes sense. sense. And both of them were clear to me, but I just remember when I was... Yeah going through divorce and I am going through these legal documents and I understand at that point, the kids were going to live with me mostly. I mean, it was the standard Utah law. And so that's what I knew was going to be happening that way. But when they were talking about soul and joint and, you know, it was just confusing. I was like, what <laughs> does that even mean? And so I just, yeah, so sometimes it's necessary. Yeah. You might share the residential, but one person has the, the final say. Yeah. So there's a lot of different things, but there, there's always a good reason why that happens. But sometimes, actually, I shouldn't say there's always a good reason, because sometimes people will 
make allegations and try to get legal sole legal custody so they have control. But those are in the high conflict category. So here's one way that it plays out with schools and with therapy. Sometimes I'll get a call, hey, I want to get my kids into therapy and I have sole legal custody. Well, what I should do as a therapist is <clears throat> is um, say, well, send me a copy of your divorce decree because sometimes people are lying and they don't want the other parent to have input. Uh, most people don't do that, but some people do. So I just like to say, okay, can you show me a copy of that? And schools should do that too, because sometimes a parent will tell the school, this parent, this, the other parent's not allowed to be here when they actually are allowed to be there. And so we're in the whole system, you know, like communities and stuff. It's like, we're, we have to get more education for the schools as well. Just don't, you know, you always have to get a copy of the divorce decree and they should be sending information to both parents. And that's something that is in progress of changing, but still a lot of assumptions are made like, this is the good parent. This is the bad parent. We don't talk to this parent. We don't let this parent come to activities and all of that. If we can change culturally, like, Hey, just cause you get divorced, you're still a family. We need everybody included. I think it'll catch up to, of course, everybody gets to have the information. Right? Yeah. But we're still, we're still in progress of moving to that. So we've got to, we've got to identify what these myths are, get things more research-based and over the generations, it will help the children because divorce is going to happen, but it'll help them not be so, I don't know, negatively affected I've actually, when I was single, I used to go into these different groups and I met more and more people who were like 40 years old and didn't want to get married because they had gone through trauma as a child with divorce. And so then they were just like, I can't get married because someone's going to get hurt. So if we can reduce, you know, do more damage control, um, we can transition in a way that still supports the healthy development of children, whether they're divorced or stay in an intact family. The family doesn't end. It just changes shape. That's what I tell everybody. That's a good point. It doesn't end. We're still connected through these children. I'm excited though, for the changes that are, that are happening. Cause had we had some of these in place when Chris and I went through our divorces, it could have been so much better for the children. And I see that and I'm like, man, I'm excited that we are heading in a better direction. So yeah, if it's yeah, several states are passing, and we have a bill in Utah that we're that we're pushing right now about shared parenting. Um, but think about okay, not just for the children, but the litigation would be reduced if this was like okay, we're just going to be equal. You wouldn't have to keep going back to court and fighting about things, and so it would save you money, <laughs> reduce the stress. There's a lot of reasons for it, but we're still it would have helped us a ton, you know, and that's that's really why we have this podcast is just, we want people to, to learn and to know, and to, to just have better information when it comes to making these decisions and learning how to, to share their children and all those things right. that are hard to navigate. That's, that's why I'm really passionate about this. So we've taken a lot of your time, so we're going to wrap up, but I have like one more question for you. Sure. And this okay. is, um, You've probably answered it, but just in your, put your therapy hat on. <laughs> if, 
Okay. If someone were looking for advice and they're entering this whole divorce life and they're just at the start of it and they have kids together, what would be your advice to them right now? Okay. So a lot of people are in a severe crisis when that happens and they've got to think long-term. Can I live with this? If, if I make a settlement, can I live with this for a long time? How's it going to affect the children later? I've seen some people trying to get out of a abusive situation and they give up everything. And then like two years later, they're remarrying and someone's looking at their divorce decree going, why did you do that? Like, I don't know. I was just trying to make it end, you know? <laughs> and so you have to think long-term financially for the children um, and that it will get better. That's the other thing is like, and also I would recommend you don't get an adversarial attorney because sometimes you'll fight about child support and they're kind of egging you on, you know, you could get more, you know, you could do this. And then it costs you $20,000 to get this $50 change. <laughs> you know what I mean? Okay. It's like, um, there are more collaborative divorce models, more peaceful ways to do it. And so, and there are lots of reasonable attorneys. I'm not trying to bash on them, but make sure you've got someone that's supporting your agenda and not increasing the conflict. Um, and, and look at collaborative divorce models where they do more therapeutically mediation-based um, where you get to decide and you're in charge. Okay, if you have a high-conflict divorce, one thing I've heard over and over in support groups is make sure your divorce decree is very strict. Yes. Um, when you have two, like sometimes they make them the, where the language sounds like, well, you can do this or whatever you guys decide, right? It's like, or as according to the needs of, and it's like, no, you need like a way to answer emails, a way to exchange parent time, a way for special circumstances and all of that very spelled out. Are you going to have to keep going back? You'll have to, you'll have different interpretations. And a lot of people, you know, 10 years later, they're saying, oh, if we would have just made this more clear, that's what I mean by strict more clear, it can reduce conflict as well. So I've, I've heard that one, like people don't realize that at the beginning because it sounds nice, but it doesn't work. And you have to go back to court. You have to go back to court or you end up with a lot less than what you wanted. Yeah. Yeah. So just make sure you're getting good advice and that you can live with the contracts that you make. And then I would say go to therapy and work through grief issues because, um, it's a big life-changing thing, even if you're the one who is who is filing. Even if you're the one who wants it, we we wake up and say, "I'm 40 years old, and I never thought I'd be single." Like there's still grief, even if you don't love that person anymore. So just just know it's a big identity change, a big shift, and getting some good help and support will um, you can take your your grief and your issues and your frustrations to the therapist and not your children awesome thank you so much thank you so much your time your wealth of knowledge and just everything that you've contributed there's a ton of great wisdom and nuggets here that people can pull from so really appreciate it i i really hope that helped um i know i was rambling a little bit there's so much information 
But uh, like I said, getting the research to the applied arena, you know, court and therapy and practical daily life is what I guess what my mission would be is like, let's let's upgrade. Let's do it better. We can do it better. There are ways. So thank you for having me. I really appreciate it. You're welcome. So if people wanted to get a hold of you, how would they do that? Um, I'd say probably the best way is through email. I'm kind of in between websites right now. Normally I would have it, but I'm not going to give that yet. So if you just want to write to me at Michelle Jones, LCSW at gmail.com. Um, and that's Michelle with two L's. You could ask me questions and I can point you in the direction of research uh, for your situation. Okay, great. Okay. Thank you so much, Michelle. I am so honored that you'd spend your time with us. So of thank course. you. And Anytime. We will see you guys all in another podcast. Okay. Good luck, Bye. everyone. Hey, if you enjoyed listening to this podcast, make sure you are subscribed to my weekly newsletter and Facebook group so you don't miss anything. Find both on my website at luckysanders.com.